This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this is the Talk of Fame Network, so we're missing Rick Goslin today. He's on assignment in, where, Ron? Louisiana? Yes, sir. A joyful trip over to uh, the bio country to see... Uh, our newly minted Hall of Famer friend, Johnny Robinson, the great chief safety from Super Bowl IV. Uh, Sweet. He's over at that boys' home that uh, he's run since his retirement. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. It's very well, good. That sounds pretty good. Picture. Yeah, and on his way yeah, by, you know I, where did he stop? He stopped at the gravesite of Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, did he really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, have you seen The Highwaymen? That's a, uh, I guess yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. About the, the sheriff? That's, anyway, it sounds pretty good with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, you know what? I, I think, actually, I'd rather not be there, but in maybe uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. That was a pretty good tournament, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it actually was a great tournament, but the uh, I will say this. It did seem to me, as the games progressed, the officials seemed to yep. always come up with a call to bail out Virginia at the last moment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You know, I mean, how on earth they overturned that that out of bounds call? Uh, the way yeah. even Texas Tech the ball. I mean, that was just well. That's but Ron, that's to me the the problem here, and I think it's a problem that's really running through all sports, and I would argue ruins all sports. And that's the intrusion of replays and officiating tool. I mean, your eyes told you, hey, the ball goes to Tech, but then you break it down frame by frame, and you know what happens? You get a call like that, which just sort of defies logic. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, the, the kid with the ball got hit from behind by a. By yeah. a uh, uh, Virginia player, and the official did the right thing. He didn't want to call a, a, a foul there with you know so little time left in 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 the game and all that. Let the players decide it, and the, so but that's why the ball got knocked out of bounds. So okay, we give Texas Tech the ball back, and everybody's even, and the players will decide the game. Then boom, we got to go look at some stupid replay, yeah, 417 well, times, and somebody yeah. finally guesses that maybe it touched his fingers and it changed the whole game. Terrible. Well. You know what? We're not going to be talking replays today, Ron. We did talk about last week, as you know. Um, but no, we will be talking to Hall of Famer John Hanna, making pitch for one of his teammates to make it to Ken. We're also going to have Hall of Fame voter John McClain talk about Shane Leckler, as well as another voter, Pete Darty of the Green Bay Press Gazette, to talk about Aaron Rodgers, the pack, and a basketball player used to cover at UW Green Bay, three-point shooter by the name of Tony Bennett. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. Ron, I wonder if he left his heart in Green Bay, huh? <laughs> Look, there's only one Tony Bennett, and he did not leave his heart uh, in Green Bay, high up on a hill covered in snow. No. That's right. Well, we're going to be leaving this broadcast right now to go to commercial. We'll see you on the other side. You'll see the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, uh, before we get on the Alliance of American Football, Ron, because I know you have plenty to say about that, um, I want to know what you have to say about your once and always favorite football team. That would be... The Oakland Raiders! That's right, the Raiders. <laughs> That's right. Specifically, I want to know what you have to say about their wide receiver, Antonio Brown. Now, once upon a time, I know people were asking, why did Pittsburgh just all but give this guy away? And now, well, not so much. Because what he did the past week, which was torch former teammate Juju Smith-Schuster in a tweet that's since been deleted, 
Lee did. That was pretty smart. About the only common sense used here. But what he did was uh, give NFL fans, it seems to me at least, uh, a glimpse into his character. And you know something, Ron? It, it wasn't a pretty sight. Well, you know, in the land, in the land of the Raiders, only your teammates are your friends, and Juju ain't wearing silver and black. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> you know. But having said that, if if I was in silver and black, I'd be watching my back when Antonio <laughs> walks by, especially if he's got a cell phone in his hand because he couldn't yeah. do it with a great arm. <laughs> Well, you know what, because we've talked about this before on the show. I think he has a pretty good idea why he threw that tantrum last year. He wasn't named the team MVP. Juju was. You know? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's part of it. But, look, there was money involved. There was a lot of issues going on. And you could say what you will or may about the guy. He's a great player. Uh, and, you know, great players, especially at wide receivers, uh, most of them seem to be squirrely. And he is yeah, certainly right. in the squirrely uh, room at this point in time. Well, what happens to squirrely receiver when he doesn't have Ben Roethlisberger thrown to him, he has Derek Carr, and the Raiders aren't winning, the Steelers are. Well, uh, first off, you might not have to worry about that. If they can protect Derek Carr, he'll be throwing it pretty often in uh, A.B.'s direction, and that may mean the Raiders start winning. But the problem is, even when the Steelers were winning, A.B. seemed to go uh, AWOL <laughs> off the yeah. reservation and, and go right. after Roethlisberger. So winning not, isn't necessarily uh, uh, enough to please him. Um you know, so uh, I, I'm sure a lot of his new teammates are watching him and wondering uh, just exactly when does my time come with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, Ron, simple question for you. Yes. You're a coach. I am. So you have one receiver to coach for your next game. Who's it going to be? Antonio Brown? OBJ? Randy Moss? Oh, Randy Moss. I mean, look, he had issues like all of them, but he was one of the greatest deep threats in in the history of the game. I mean, he was a generational player. Uh, Even though he had his moments uh, when he wasn't playing uh, exactly all out, uh, when he was, it was lights out for for most of the teams. So I would say uh, I'd take my chances with Randy Moss and just hope against hope that he would stay happy. And that he wants to play. Yeah, because you never <laughs> I play know. When I want to play. <laughs> and I would make sure there's no infield on the field, because if there is, he's not <laughs> running <you> on. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, that tells me that Ronnie has something more to say, and I know he does. And I know where you're headed, Ron. That league that didn't survive its first season. You're right, Clark. Uh, there's two interesting contrasts in the world of pro football this week. Players in the Alliance of American Football came back to their temporary housing in a number of cities only to find their baggage in the street, uh, their belongings in the lobby, uh, and themselves out of work because the first year development league went out of business with little prior warning with a month left in the season. Meanwhile, up in Green Bay, the Packers are paying 19 of their players roughly $5.5 million in bonuses just to come to Green Bay and work out in the offseason. That's over 25% of what the Alliance needed to stay in business. Talk about the flip sides of the same coin. Well, the NFL refuses to fund a developmental league because it knows it has a free one called college football. Guys seeking a second chance in the Alliance now stand without a job, a place to stay, and in some cases, no medical insurance to pay for the fallout from injuries they already sustained playing for the Alliance. Now that is bogus. The Alliance always seemed a shaky long-term alliance to me, but uh, wouldn't you think its founders, which included Hall of Fame GM Bill Polian and Charlie Ebersol, the son of uh, longtime NBC Sports guru Dick Ebersol, wouldn't you think they would have been sure to have enough in the kitties to survive the first year? Well, they didn't, and that opened the door to an angel investor who grew horns in less than two months. Carolina Hurricanes owner and CEO Tom Dundun, aptly named Dundun, uh, <laughs> turned out to be aptly named, I just said that, because that's what the alliance is after. He pulled his $250 million line of credit that he'd agreed uh, to give them, 
after the NFLPA refused to be stronger on by him and allow NFL players, practice squad players in particular, uh, to play in the alliance. And why is that? Because they wouldn't have been covered under their union contract. Dundon liked to call it a flexible system. Flexible system, loosely translated, meant your union contract protection is adios, amigos, after which the NFLPA said adios, muchacho. Well, that leaves many of the Alliance's players as homeless and in financial limbo, especially as it relates to the injured players. Now, that is more bogus than the Alliance of American Football turned out to be. Okay, Ron. Whom do you blame here? Who's to blame? Well, I think there's always in these kinds of cases, there's plenty of blame to go around. But in the end, you have to blame Charlie Ebersol and Bill Poley, and they were the founders, uh, and Tom uh, Dundon, uh, who claimed to put up the $25 million credit line, and they took it, took his ball and his wallet and went home. Uh, you know, what Dundon wanted to do was change the whole way the alliance was going to operate. The original idea was they would operate like this for three years, after which they would try to make an agreement with the NFL to start getting young players uh, from them and... and you know, further prepare them until they're ready to play in the NFL. But Dundon wanted to jump the shark and, and, and go right into it. They needed the cash. They took his line of credit, and he took over control of the league. And within a month, no league. <laughs> well, I always thought the idea of a developmental league, um, I thought that was a good idea. I mean, we talked about it with Bill Polian about three weeks ago or so, and um, and then we talked about it with Bill Polian about four years ago when he first had the idea. I thought that was a good idea. But you remember what he said to us, Ron, when we had him on here? He said, you have to prove you could survive. And sadly, <laughs> this league proved nothing. Proved it couldn't no. survive. Well, you're right. I mean, 90% of all startups uh, fail the first year because they don't have enough capital. And 90% right. of the remaining 10% fail the second year for the same reason. Uh, these yeah. guys didn't even make it through a year. They barely made it through eight weeks. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. Right, yeah. and you mentioned Charlie Ebersol as a co-founder, and, and and you know we've had his father Dick Ebersol on the show a couple of times, and and you'd think he would have learned from Dad about the deep pockets you need to get something like this going. Because remember, I mean, Dick was involved with the XFL that failed, and and is going to return again next year and may fail again. But he should have learned from him, wouldn't you think? Well, uh, yeah, but you know, I think that uh, uh, I hate to say it, but you know, Charlie Ebersol is a. a is the son of a rich guy, uh, young guy, 36 years old, who didn't know what he didn't know. You know, he what he didn't know or didn't want to know was that most of the doors open to him prior to this have been opened by his dad. And that's all well and good. Everybody needs a leg up. Uh, but at some point, uh, you know, you've got to understand what you're doing. And the bottom line is... Uh, they went into this on a hope and a prayer, I believe, because they were trying to beat the XFL to the starting line right. when they weren't right. you know, financially set to do it, and then they were hoping. Well, life on a prayer, man, that doesn't, that doesn't make it. Not in big money things like pro football. So essentially they weren't prepared is what you're saying. They sort of jumped the shark because they wanted to beat the XFL out of the gate. Yeah, that's my take on it. They wanted to get in there and get established. Well, that would have been fine if they had enough money uh, to last out the season, but as I understand it, the plan was, we'll start, we'll be so successful, people will love us, and rich people will flock to us with their money. Well, let me tell you something. Rich people don't flock. They walk. <laughs> yeah. To USC, Stanford, Yale, oh, never mind. <laughs> exactly. That's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, um, it's funny. I know you talked about um, the, the, the players and getting practice squad players in the NFL. And uh, I, I remember us talking about that and how in the NFL, you know, might loan it uh, to some players. And obviously it didn't. The NFLPA stepped in. But I, I always wondered, uh, who in his right mind is going to loan players to beat up their bodies another 10 games before the start of the NFL season? It really never made sense to me. Well, the only way it makes sense is if, you know, you really got guys you you think need a lot of game experience. 
chance uh, to be ready to play, which they're not going to get in the NFL, even on a practice squad. So you say, okay, uh, you know, we'll do this. But to think that they could do this uh, without prior approval of the of the union. What was right. crazy. <laughs> it was yeah. insane. Yeah, I, I got a guy covered under a uni contract, and I'm going to let him go play over there where you can pull a plug whenever you want, and he's got to pay for his own knee surgery. Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. Right. Hey, bottom line question, Ronnie. Um, is there room for another pro league today, and if so, under what conditions? Uh, you know, it doesn't really feel like it anymore. You know, the NFL controls every means of distribution. It commands the marketplace. It's in 32 cities. So there aren't many places left craving for more football. And lastly, spring football right after the Super Bowl, I think it's just too hard to sell unless it's micromanaged financially. I mean, imagine how the minor league baseball teams would do, and they're all, a lot of them are successful. But how do you think they do if their season started right after the World Series? Not so. Yeah, you're right. Oh, thanks, Al Ronnie. And you know something? Frankly, I'd rather watch the Grizzlies in spring football. There you go. Now we're talking. <laughs> and I'd rather listen to Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty talk about the backers and UVA coach Tony Bennett, which he's going to do right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we promised you Pete Doherty, and he's here with us now. Pete, of course, is a Hall of Fame voter. He's been here before. He's also a columnist for the Green Bay Press-Gazette. So he knows all things Packers. But you know what? He knows all things Tony Bennett, too. And I'm not talking about the singer. I'm talking about the UVA coach, because Pete covered him when he was a player on the University of Wisconsin Green Bay basketball team somewhere about like 27 years ago. And Pete, um, I saw something you wrote then. He, he wasn't just a good shooter, I guess, right? He was a great three-point shooter, right? Well, yeah, he's still the um, NCAA all-time career leader for three-pointers, like, percentage, like 49-7, something like that. Uh, yeah, he was an outstanding shooter. He was a good player, too. He was a playmaker. I mean, he was he was quick and fast and uh, you know, as a college player, he was he was dominant. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. What do you remember of his career as a player? I mean, is there any particular game or, or play that stood out? And, and, and also, was he as calm then as a player as he seems to be now as a head coach? Yeah, he was. He's, he's much different than his dad temperamentally. Um, they're like opposite sides. I don't know if you've ever seen Dick Bennett coach, but... Yes, you know, he lives yep. and dies. Yeah, he lives and dies on every possession. And Tony is really stoic on the sideline, so that's a you know, that's a big difference there. Um, you know, he he had so many good games. It was just routine. Um, the game that you mentioned, where somebody tweeted out, it was his last game, and they had um, they had had a great season. But their other their second guard, who was a very good player, tore his ACL the week before the conference tournament, and they got bumped in the second round of the conference tournament. And because they lost their second best player, the committee decided not to put him into the tournament. So they go to the NIT, and the NIT sends them out to Manhattan College to play in the first round. That week in practice, he really badly aggravated a, a back injury, a lower back injury that he'd had earlier in the season, and he could hardly move. And so he's out there. He can't do anything off the dribble. He can't get to the basket at all. Um, so the best he could do is like maybe take a dribble or two and pull up and shoot. And he just, especially in the second half, he just started knocking down these impossible shots with guys draped all over him. And he ended up scoring like 36 or 38 points, and they lost at the buzzer, basically, to Manhattan College. He kept them in the game the whole way. And it was just, it was one of the best shooting exhibitions I'd ever seen because he couldn't move and he had guys all over him, and he was still just, um, rising up and just knocking down the shots. Um, so that's probably the game that stands out most, and he was really stoic. 
And after that game, because I used to talk to him after games all the time. I know his dad a lot better, but I, you know, I know him Tony well enough. And after games, he was always you know, his coach's son, so he was always cautious about what he said. Uh, he was the best player, so he was getting all of the press, and so he didn't want to be front and center all the time. Um, and so he was always really stoic and careful with his words. And after that game, as he as he started talking, all of a sudden his voice cracked, and he just you know he almost cried a little bit talking about I can't believe I I won't be playing for my dad anymore. And uh, when he at that time there was no way he was going into coaching is what he had told me. And look where he ends up. <laughs> Why do you think that is? In the end, what do you what do you think it was that sort of dragged him into his dad's job? You know, I'm sure just the love of the game. And when he went to, so he played the NBA for three years. The last year, he tore his plantar fascia in camp, and so he didn't play that season. And then, rather than return to the NBA, he went and played in Australia for a couple of years. And then he went from there to New Zealand, and in New Zealand. He was a player coach for a season, and I think doing that gave him the blog. That's what it sounds like to me anyway. So then he came back and uh, worked as a manager for his dad the year that Wisconsin went to the Final Four. And it sounds like they used him as like this uber practice player, you know, when they had to practice to get ready to play a star guard. <laughs> they put Tony out there and make him defend him. <laughs> and then he eventually became assistant for uh, his dad and then Bo Ryan and then followed his dad out to Washington State. You know, one of the things I wonder about Rodgers, Clark and I were talking about this earlier in the show, um, is here's a guy, as I understand it at least, you know, uh, Clark and I obviously both lived in California for quite a while, so we kind of know people out there. You know, he had problems at Cal. Uh, Favre didn't have much use for him. And, and to a degree, you could say, well, okay, that's his next guy. He's coming after his job, I get. You know, but apparently he now doesn't speak to his family. He can't get it now. He's got problems with a coach. I mean, it's hard to not look at it from the outside, uh, Pete, and, and say, this guy's got some problems. Uh, is that unfair? Um you know, I don't know. I probably not. I mean, I don't. I never heard of any Cal issues. I can't say I ever looked into his Cal career very, very deeply. Hard guy to get um, along with. I've been told. You know, uh, there's uh, there's probably some truth that he's really smart, like really smart, and he knows it. And my guess is, on an IQ test, he scores higher than anybody who's ever coached him. You know, and that, you know, he he knows he's smarter, and he's. It probably makes him harder to get along with. Um, he's a little, he's, in my opinion, he's too demonstrative on the field when guys make mistakes. You see all quarterbacks chew guys out at times, but um, I think he does it a little more often where it's just with body language and with hand motions. Yeah. Um, that you know, guys are he's basically showing everybody that a guy has made a mistake and that it wasn't his fault. So I think he could be fairly criticized for that. Um, he he's really smart. Like when he did this long interview yesterday with one of the radio stations in Milwaukee, um, I mean, he gave a really impassioned defense of himself, and it was articulate, and he came off well. Um, but the history is, as you pointed out, also so there's he's got to bear at least some responsibility for that. Yeah, yeah, it just, uh, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know, it just sort of struck me that uh, here's a guy with all this talent, uh, that's obvious, and as you point out, very intelligent guy, um, yet every time you turn around, it seems, you know, there's, he's got a problem with this guy, he's got a problem with this guy, and, uh, now these former players, they're all bitter guys, well, everybody hates the guy, I mean, you know, it just makes you scratch your head and say, you know, do you ever... Do, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way, Pete, is I once said to a player who was similar to Rogers, 
you know, one thing would improve your whole outlook. And he said, what's that? And I said, if you bought a mirror. <laughs> and she just sort of looked at me like, what? And I said, really? Everything you talk about is everybody else. Like, you're just a victim of everything, just like a leaf blowing in the wind. And you know, like that's, <laughs> yeah, I bet that didn't go over well. That, no, that's, that's really interesting. You know, um, we'll learn a lot in the next two years because, you know, things fell apart with McCarthy and Rodgers just had had his fill of that offense and didn't think McCarthy had adapted with the times. Well, now he's got a young coach who's an offensive guy, and this is what he wanted. So he's got a lot on the line for the next couple of seasons, and I'll be curious to see how he does get along with um, with Matt Lafleur and how things, you know, when the hard times hit, they always do for everybody in the NFL. Um, you know what? How he reacts when those things happen. Well, Pete, I heard you refer earlier to a rift between Rodgers and McCarthy, and uh, I guess, A, I wondered if there was, a, in fact, a rift, and it sounds like you think there was, and, and B, if you think he played a role in the firing of Mike McCarthy, and if so, what was what was that role? Yeah, rift, now, rift would make it sound like they personally disliked each other and like they just couldn't stand each other. I, I, it, the indications are, everything I saw was, personally, they got on fine. And I, but I think um, Rogers definitely. I don't think there's any question that the last couple seasons he just did not like the offense and didn't think the scheme had evolved with the rest of the NFL. And so I, there was definitely a rift. Um, who was more responsible? Um, depends on who you ask. If you think McCarthy was not evolving and, and wasn't and had lost some of his edge, then you could just as easily argue that. Rodgers wants to win and has a high standard, and he was justified in being upset. If you think Rodgers is really hard to get along with, then could be, you know, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, it was more his responsibility. Um, what was the second part of the question, Clark? Sorry, I forgot. Well, that. I, I, yeah, if, if you think you played a role in the firing, what was that role? Um, oh, yeah, he, yeah, he for sure, of course he did. I mean, he didn't, you know, go to the front office and say fire him, but he played really poorly last season. Now, he was playing hurt on an injured knee and revealed this week that or yesterday that it was, uh, amongst other things, he had, he had a partially torn MCL and a, a small crack in the tibia from when the bones hit together, and he had that all season. So uh, that might affect his play some, but he still he played poorly. And in the end, that's what got Mike McCarthy fired is, you know, that he played poorly, so the team played poorly. Do you think Mike can survive this, or is he going to go the Brian Billick road and just never get another chance because his reputation has been, you know, when you if, in fact, he's getting massages, uh, you know, at least they weren't with Bob Kraft, so that was good. Uh, but, but, you know, can he recover from this? You know, I'd, I'd be really curious to know what you guys think because somebody asked me that today, and in the moment right now, it looks really bad for him. Um, and he'll have some explaining to do. I, I just wonder what, you know, next January, however many months away that is, you know, how much things will change. And you know how they always say in free agency, it only takes one. You know, right. same for hiring That's head right. coaches, it only takes one. So if there's some team out there that wants an experienced coach who's won a lot of games, you know, he would he would have to interest them, um, I would think. So they would look into this, and if they if he's the kind of guy they're looking for, then they would find reasons to explain it away. Or if they talk to people who think highly of him and gave him a good recommendation, they'd probably be apt to, to take those recommendations. So my guess is it'll hurt him some, maybe even a fair amount. Will it be just a total deal-breaker? 
I'm thinking not, but I'm not at all sure about that, and I'm actually wondering what you guys think. Well, I think it depends a little bit on the team. If the Packers go out this year and win 12 games, then people are going to look at him and, and say, well, <laughs> the same yeah, guy, pretty much the same guys. What's the deal? Uh, I agree I'm, with you. I think he'd have a hard time then. Hey, Pete, we got to run. Sorry, but we got to go. Thanks for, so much for the time. Keep your head down. I'm so sure it's safe to come out of the foxhole yet there in Green Bay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Pete. You got it. That was the Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty. Up next, Hall of Fame guard John Hanna. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, some consider our next guest to be the greatest offensive lineman in NFL history. And that, of course, is Hall of Fame guard John Hanna. Now, John was named first-team All-Pro seven times. He went to nine Pro Bowls with a two-time All-Decade selection. He was named to the NFL's 75th anniversary team and had a unique double-double when he was named to both the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame in the same year. And that year would be 1991. But he's not coming back to the Talk of Fame Network to talk about his career. No, sir. He's here to talk about his former Patriots teammate, Leon Gray, who was named to the Patriots Hall of Fame last week. And, John, so good to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, and there's no better reason to be a part of it than to talk about Leon, that's for sure. Well, John, you played, of course, next to Leon for the first six years of both your careers after the Patriots right. picked him up on, on waivers when Miami released him. How long before you realized that Leon was somebody special, that he was a special player? Well, the first year, um, actually, we played on different sides. I played left guard, and I played against with uh, Bob Reynolds, who we got from the St. Louis Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but, and Leon played on the, on the right side with uh, Leon Gray. It wasn't until our second year that Coach Fairbanks moved us together. He was trying to get those uh, older guys to try to teach us how to play and then put us together the next year. But uh, you knew Leon was special right away. You could just, you know, all you had to do was watch him move, and you knew he was a gifted athlete. What made him so dominant a left tackle? I mean, people talk a lot about his – uh, his feet, which uh, certainly they say the same thing about you, the way you could move like a, uh, a massive ballerina. Was it his feet or was it his power? What was it about him that made him such a dominant left tackle? It's, it's, it's both. I mean, he had both. You know, usually when you're on the left side, uh, it's really important to have good feet. And, and the idea of it, because you're, you know, you're actually, especially a left tackle, you're out, you're, you don't have that tight end next to you. So you have to really be have good balance, and uh, you've got to be able to control that guy in the pass rush. And Leon was able to do that. But not only that, Leon had the power and the strength to come off the ball and power block. He could drive block better than anybody, you know, around. And so not only was he that great ballerina, so to speak, but he was just had that power that could just knock people off the ball. John, are you surprised, given all that, that, that his name has never come up for the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Shocked. Not surprised. Shocked. I mean, uh, for him not to have mentioned, been mentioned as one of the outstanding offensive linemen in the NFL is uh, a, a, a real... It, it just amazes me because 
there's so many people that he that he's played against that admire and respect him, and I know all the offensive linemen that I hang with. You know, just they talk about how great he was, and uh, he just seems to have been, you know, kind of brushed aside for some reason. Well, if you were standing in front of that group of 48 voters, um, and boy, it sounds like you should be standing in front of them. Well, what would you tell them to convince them to at least talk about him? I mean, he's never been discussed. To at least talk about him, if not consider him for the football hall of fame. Well, let's do. You know, I played on that '78 team with Leon, and uh, we still hold that NFL rushing record uh, for some what twenty something years later, thirty years later. Right, and uh, that that says something. And then the other thing, you know, he went down to uh, Houston, and if you talk to Earl uh, Campbell, uh, he'll tell you real quick that one of the reasons he was as successful as he was uh, his early years with the uh, Oilers was because Leon Gray was there at left tackle. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up, John, because Earl Campbell's two greatest rushing years were the two years that Leon was there attacking. I, 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 I know, but yeah, nobody it's amazing. understands it's amazing. that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's that's part. I mean, Leon was opening those holes. Now, now, following that '78 season, uh, uh, when when he was traded, uh, you guys were you know highly considered Super Bowl. Uh, contenders, and he was traded the Orioles for a first and sixth round pick. And I looked it up, and that day you were quoted by our friend Will McDonough saying, "We just traded away our Super Bowl." Meanwhile, in Houston, yep. Elvin Bethea said, "This is one of the happiest days of my life. I never have to play against that guy again." <laughs> what? Uh, uh, how difficult was it uh, for you, uh, life without Leon? <clears throat> my game got limited. Uh, I could. I, I wasn't free. Leon could handle his his position, mm-hmm. so I, I never had to worry about that. I could do, I could be free to do whatever I wanted to do, and and which frees me up to play my game. Mm-hmm. But when you have other players that are next to you that aren't as talented, so to speak, mm-hmm. then you have to change up your game to help them out, and it, so it limited my my ability to do that. And how much do you think it hurt uh, those Patriot teams? I mean, yeah, you still had a lot of great talent there, but you were missing that great left tackle. We had the dominant left side attack. You know, and, and the, the, the idea is, if you look at most teams, the Raiders did it first with uh, Upshaw and Shell. Yep. But they, just, they got the guys that could pass block, but they could also run block. And they, uh, usually on that, Blind side, as the book calls it, you know, everybody puts that real good pass with it. Well, you, usually you have this guy out there that can pass block, but he's not man enough to be a real good run blocker. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden you got Leon out there who can do both equally well, and it's we you know we were able to win. If you look at the moment, a lot of the yardage we gained, it was weak side, and uh, it was uh, because of that mismatch. Because Leon could come off the ball and bury those guys that had a few bricks short in his back pocket. <laughs> well, one other thing, you know, you 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 once said I thought I thought this was really interesting. There was a quote I found where you said you were talking about 
your relationship with Leon. You said, we ate together, we studied film together. I knew the air he breathed. How did you yeah. two guys have such a close relationship? I'm sure you were different in a lot of ways. I know he got a music scholarship to Jackson State, played the band yeah. at halftime. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and you, you know, were a you know, the number one lineman coming out of uh, college. How did you two of you form this bond that you clearly had? I think it happened one night at camp. We were on base. Uh, our second year, Coach Fairbanks put us together, and we lived together at camp, on road, everything. But about the first week into camp, uh, one night, you know, you just sit and laying in bed, and you're talking about, you know, how you grew up and things like that. And... Uh, Man, dog just started talking about all that stuff, and we found out that we had more in common than just football. Mm -hmm. You know, we grew up very similar, and uh, we just—I don't know—I think that that night we just bonded as friends. And uh, you know, you were talking about that. One, I told somebody the other day. I said the greatest compliment we ever had. I used to have football camps down now before, and I'd bring in a few athletes to the young kids down in Alabama. And uh, so anyway, Leon and I were demonstrating how, you know, we had to play together as an offensive line. As that does. And there was a friend of ours, Ken Hutcherson, who was a linebacker at Seattle, who's from Aniston, Alabama. And Hutch, uh, after we got through demonstrating, he came up and he says, I've, I've seen ballet performances that weren't as coordinated as the way you guys move. <laughs> and that's just the way it was. We were just, we just, we knew each other like the back of our hand. Well, John, and we're speaking with Hall of Famer John Hanna on the Talk of Fame Network. John, you, you mentioned that 76 Patriots team that when your running game averaged, averaged 210 and a half yards a game. Um, two years later, you set a record that still stands and may never be broken. That's rushing for 3,165 yards, mostly behind, of course, you, Leon, and Russ Francis. I, I, I guess my question is, knowing that the Patriots going to run. Russ Francis was on the Russ, Russ was on the right side primarily. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but why did anyone stop you guys when it was obvious what was coming? <laughs> Well, they did. We, you know, and Leon, I'll be honest with you. I won't brag a little bit. We've gone to, we've actually gone up the line of scrimmage and looked at a guy and said, you know, you know where it's coming, but you can't stop us. <laughs> and, and that's that's the kind of confidence that we had. I mean, we just we just we had we had that bravado at one time, and uh, you know, we were, we were just confident in each other's ability. Wow. Now, you two also, of course, famously held out sort of like uh, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale did with the Dodgers, although it didn't quite work out as good for you guys as it did for them. Um, now, that's why That's why Leon got traded, you know. Sure. Right. Yeah, no, they, held a, they yeah. held a grudge for a long time. <laughs> they were in New England in those well, days, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, did, how did that idea sort of come to pass? And obviously, to do it, you both had to really trust each other. Because if yeah. one guy breaks from the herd, I mean, the other guy's dead. So, yeah. How did that come to be, and, and how were you so sure, each of you and the other guy? We, well, we went down. We were we made the Pro Bowl, and uh, Gene Upshaw and uh, Art Hill uh, were there. And and, uh, and uh, Gene says, you know, we couldn't tell each anybody what we made that year. So he said, uh, you know, we can't tell what we make, but we can write it down on a piece of paper, <laughs> and we'll just pull it out and see who makes what. So. They pulled out the papers, 110, 105, 95, 
25, 30, 28 times. So I get back to the room, and I'm sitting there, and the phone rings, and I pick it up. And I said, hello? He says, hog. I said, yeah, big dog. He says, oh, which one were you? And I said, I was 30. Which one were you? He said, I was 28 size. I said, what are we going to do? He said, well, Sam's agent, Howard Flushman's down here. And he says, uh, I think we ought to go talk to him. So that's what we did. And uh, we just made a pack and, that, and we stayed out and did what we were supposed to do. You did stay out, but you came back after th- three games, and I know the team was, I think Ron told me, one and two without you guys. I think you lost to the Browns. Well, the Jets, but you know, and the bad, the bad thing is, is we would have never missed a game because we went to camp, got in shape, played, got ready for season, and we said if we don't have a contract by the last preseason game, we're walking. So we played the whole preseason. Last game came, didn't have a contract, so me and Leon walked. Well, that night, about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, we got phone calls that said, uh, y'all come in. He says, I think we got a contract. It's not as good as we'd like, but it's best to get on the condition we got. This is Howard talking. Well, we go there, and, and uh, Coach Fairbanks says, uh, you know, I think we got a deal. He says, i got to go confirm it with the Sullivans one more time. So he goes into the living room, and Chuck Sullivan's sitting there going, <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they, they, that's when they reneged on Fairbanks and wouldn't let Fairbanks sign. But we'd have never missed a game. Okay. Well, well, John, um, like the Patriots, we got to run here. But thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it, and best of luck with the Leon Graybrush. Uh, I, I think he is Hall of Fame worthy, and so is Ron. Oh, I, I know he is. If you ask any of the Hall of Fame guys, they'll be the same thing. I tell you, John, you got to make sure you come up uh, for the induction. I, I think his son's coming up from Atlanta. I think he's like a fifth-grade teacher or something. He's uh, yeah. he's going to come up, and uh, you ought to come up because it would be great to I'll, see you. I'll, I'll be there. Great. That's great. Thanks, John. I'll, I'll be there. Thanks, right, John. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye. That was Hall of Famer John Hanna. Up next, this is a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost at the end of our first hour, so, Robert, let's get a riff from the Auburn UVA. Here, would you please? That's the two-minute warning. Thanks, guys. Ron, that's your cue to start the two-minute drill, so let's get going. Okay, Clarky, who gets resurrected first? The AAF, the USFL, or the Grateful Dead? Jesus and Mary Jane. <laughs> did the Giants have shopped Odell Beckham before trading him to the Brownies? They did. They shopped him to Cleveland. <laughs> uh, Baker Mayfield says Beckham is, quote, happy in Cleveland, unquote. For how long? Until Jarvis Landry reports to camp. <laughs> Catches his first pass. Uh, yeah, reports, right. reports claim that ex-backer coach Mike McCarthy regularly skips Saturday team meetings to get a massage. So what's the rub? You didn't get Bob Kraft to pay for it. <laughs> Ouch! Can McCarthy repair his broken image, or is he now doomed to be the next Brian Billick? Spending a life talking about football, but never coaching it. He's doomed, Ronnie. UCLA didn't even interview him as his next basketball coach. <laughs> is Aaron Rodgers the quarterback version of Antonio Brown? I can't believe you'd ask that. No! Aaron Rodgers is driving the bus. A.B., he's throwing people under it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sounds like those Rogers. Uh, Rogers denied Monday any major rift with McCarthy and asked all Packer fans to quote, show him the respect he deserves. When's Rogers going to do the same? Well, he already has. He paid for his next massage. <laughs> Speaking of your friend AB, this week he claimed Juju Smith-Schuster fumbled away the sale of playoff hopes. Truth teller or fake news seller? Neither. Self-absorbed idiot. <laughs> what do you mean? AB says he wants to, quote, inspire people, unquote, on how to do better business. What does he inspire you to do better? Easy. Start ripping you and Goose on Twitter. <laughs> Jerry Jones' son, Stephen, said money. If Dak Prescott wants a new contract, it'll have to be team-friendly. What does that mean? Cheap. Prescott has said he won't do a Tom Brady team-friendly deal because, quote, nobody's wife makes as much money as his wife does. He can do his contract however he wants. That sound team-friendly to you? Yeah, it does to Bob Kraft. Russell Wilson says the Seahawks have an April 15th deadline to give him a new deal. What is he, the IRS? Nope, but he is the Seahawks' cash cow. That's the end of that. That's it of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have 60 more minutes coming up with Nick Canepa, John McClain, and Hall of Fame running backs. Oh, Hall of Fame running backs? Yeah, we're about to find out. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back. Hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. Ron and I are flying solo today. The Goose Man is off sampling, I think, Ron Cajun food. Yes. Louisiana. Yeah. You know what? I'd love to be with him. Especially if he's going to Manali's in New Orleans for that barbecue shrimp. We won't be in New Orleans, and there's no Manali's in Monroe, Louisiana. I'll bet there's some barbecue <laughs> shrimp there somewhere. Yeah, gotta be. Well, uh, you know what, Ron? I, I would have loved to have been in your town. That's Boston this week, too. Um, they had the Red Sox opening day, but that's not why I want to be there. I would like to be there, not to see the Red Sox. I'd rather see the Yankees, frankly, but because the Patriots were there. Yes, they Ooh, were. Hey, hey. <laughs> Except, Ron, not all the Patriots were. Yeah. Owner Robert Kraft and quarterback Tom Brady, eh, absent. Tell us why. Uh, yeah, Coach Belichick, he wasn't there either. You know, no days off, so he was he was laboring in the vineyards, I'm sure, or maybe on yeah, the vineyard. of course. And uh, as was, I'm sure, uh, Tom terrific. Uh, as for Bob, I think there is a little uh, uh, a little spitefulness there on Bob's part. Uh, the Boston Globe, which is owned by uh, John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, right. among the newspapers that have uh, f- uh, filed uh, legal papers. Uh, trying to get that video of uh, 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 Bob, the man formerly known as Robert Kraft's uh, foray into a uh, house of ill repute, shall we say, down in Florida, for which he got busted. <laughs> and uh, they, he's not that happy about uh, with uh, John Henry and the Boston Globe, so uh, he decided to uh, not appear. Okay. Well, I want to ask you this, Ron. Yes. I understand it was a celebration of champions, right? I mean, you have it the Red was. Sox winning the World Series, and you have the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. But given that, why weren't the Grizzlies invited for winning that hockey title? Well, I must say, uh, I kept waiting for the call. Uh, had the had the trophy all waxed up and everything. We were ready to go. Uh, <laughs> could have had three of our four sports with championship representation. Uh, but that being said, uh, uh, me and the Grizzlies will be partying hardy in a couple weeks at one of Ty Law's trampoline parks launch in Nashua, <laughs> New Hampshire. And the joint will be jumping, and so will my kids. <laughs> 
sounds like a lot more fun. Well, anyway, Ron, glad to have you show up here today. Thanks very much. Though, I tell you, we, we do miss Jack, your son. We're going to take a break right here. When we return, some Hall of Fame talk about running backs. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Antonio Brown and Aaron Rodgers weren't the only one making noise this week. No siree. So was running back Jamal Charles, who is now an unrestricted free agent. Uh, he told TMZ, boy, they seem to be everywhere. But he told TMZ that, yes, as a matter of fact, I am Hall of Fame worthy because look at my yards per carry, yards uh, per carry average was 5.4, which is pretty damn good. Pretty good. Uh, and as he pointed out, there are only two running backs, I think, but 200 more carries that eclipse that. And they were pretty good guys. Hall of Famers, Jim Brown and Barry Sanders, pretty good company to be in. So, Ron, Jamal Charles. Yes. He ranked 56 in all-time rushing yards. He was a three-time All-Pro. He was named to four Pro Bowls, and he led the league in rushing touchdowns in 2013. But he wasn't part of a championship team. And as a matter of fact, he only played in two playoff games, and those were both losses. Does he have an argument? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think he, he, he does. I mean, if you think about it, uh, how many championships did Barry Sanders win? It would be zero. <laughs> you know, how many playoff games did he win? If it wasn't zero, it was close enough to zero that it was close to zero. So, I mean, I, zero. I, I, yeah, you know, I just think you can't uh, uh, hold that against a guy uh, because that's, a, you know, that's a team situation. I mean, you know, you can't, can't blame him for that. Um, having said that, um, I think that uh, um, when you've uh, gained an average of 177 yards a season the last four years because of injuries, then your mm-hmm. argument starts to take on some some water. On the flip side, he had five seasons of over 1,000 yards production, and uh, when your average per carry is exceeded by only, arguably, perhaps the two greatest runners in history, yeah, you got a case to make. Whether you yeah. can win it, I don't know, but you got a case to well, make. Well, I, I mentioned he ranks 56 all-time in rushing, which he does, um, but the guy just ahead of him at 55 was Terrell Davis. Guess what? He's in the Hall of Fame. Right. And and it seems to me that at least lends more substance to his case. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah, certainly. Uh, Jamal Charles will take one look at Terrell Davis's bust, and he has an argument right there, uh, which I always said would be the problem if we put Terrell Davis uh, in the Hall of Fame for three good seasons. Right. And some good performances in the postseason on a couple of Super Bowl-winning teams. And that's exactly uh, uh, what's happened. I mean, to be frank, if you look at the full breadth of their careers, who did more in the NFL? Jamal Charles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but where Davis pushed it over the top was the playoffs. That's why I asked you about the playoff games that, that Charles was in. That was the argument with Davis. Look at his postseason. I mean, great players stand up great in great moments, and that was the, the argument with Davis, and it certainly carried the room. Um, but the, the thing that strikes me when I hear something like this, Ron, is going back to that all-important eye test. Everyone hears about it all the time. You know, in other words, forget the numbers, trust your eyes. And, and I believe that. And and honestly, when I looked at Jamal Charles, I, I never thought I was looking at a Hall of Fame running back. I know about the numbers, but I never thought I was looking at a Hall of Fame running back. And I'm not knocking the guy. I'm not. I mean, he was good. And then sometimes he was great. But to me, he wasn't good enough to pass that eye test. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, to be honest, I, I never I saw him play a number of times and thought, you know, good player. Uh, uh, but to be honest, 
<laughs> I didn't really think Terrell Davis belonged in the Hall of Fame either. And there yeah. he is, you know. So uh, whether the landscape is changing, uh, you know, because you know as well as Maybe I Maybe our eyes are changing, wrong. Well, yeah, well, that's for sure. But, but uh, you know, in, in the case of Terrell Davis, yeah, sure, he had those spectacular uh, playoff games. But if he had played the normal 8, 9, 10, 11 years and played in 5, 6, 7 sets of playoffs, you think he still would have had that average? No, he wouldn't have. Uh, it would be highly unlikely that he would. I mean, Barry Sanders played in the playoffs one year, and he averaged minus one yard. Uh, I remember that bring game. You, I was there. Yeah, that will bring your average down in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, he was, in a, in a tricky, odd way, uh, Davis was blessed that his career was so uh, short. You know, in Giles' case, uh, I, th- I think uh, it's going to be an interesting argument, uh, I-, I think, an interesting sort of test, an interesting study. Uh, uh, especially if he can find some way to sign somewhere and put together one more great season or, or pretty good right. season. I mean, if he were to put together another 1,000-yard season, I'm not saying he will, uh, but if he could. Uh, uh, you know, But he's not the only running back who thinks he belongs in the, in, in the Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a number of them uh, who think they can make strong cases for themselves. Well, let's talk about one of them. Yes, sir, here's someone who might be good enough to pass the eye test. Except nobody's talking about him either as Hall of Fame worthy. That's former running back Ricky Waters. Now, Ron wrote about him in the past year, and I know, Ron, you feel passionately about Ricky Waters and his case for Canton, so play it again, Ron. Yeah, I mean, four words aren't much when compared with 10,643 rushing yards or 91 touchdowns, unless they're the wrong four words. And so they may have been for Ricky Waters, a man with a Hall of Fame case, but no one eager to make it. In 1995, Waters was a Pro Bowl running back and Super Bowl champion who had just arrived in Philadelphia as a free agent. That arrival was big news coming off a final game as a 49er in which he scored three touchdowns in Super Bowl XXIX. Uh, reminding the world he was not only an adept runner but a reliable receiver out of the backfield at a time when that was becoming a valuable asset. His future in Philadelphia seemed bright. And then he said those four words. For who? For what? <laughs> Few people would ever forget it. And so it seems football has forgotten him. But that's not really easy to do, considering that Waters scored those 91 touchdowns in 10 seasons and rushed for over 1,000 yards seven times with the 49ers, Eagles, and Seahawks, one of only two backs in history to rush for over 1,000 yards for three different teams. He was a workhorse as well as a show horse. He carried the ball over 300 times in four seasons, including a shoulder-numbing 353 times for the Eagles in 1996 and over 300 in back-to-back seasons with the Seahawks in 98 and 99, while also making 467 career receptions good for 4,000. 248 more yards and 13 more touchdowns. 18 years after retiring, Ricky Waters still stands 23rd all-time in the rushing list and his 2,622 carries is 21st. Clearly, he is a back who showed up on time at all times, yet his name never shows up when potential Hall of Fame running backs are mentioned. Why not? Four words, or so it seems. On September 3rd of 1995, following his first Eagle game, he was asked why he hadn't stretched out for a pass from quarterback Randall Cunningham, and the obvious reason was he was going to get crushed by two Tampa defenders in a 27-6 loss. His reply was four words that followed him the rest of his career. For who? For what? Later, he would admit he regretted saying it, and he regretted the way he said it. But he was a brash guy, often a flippant personality, a guy some felt hurt his locker room. But he certainly, certainly he wasn't sunshine and roses every day. But on Sunday, that guy was a force. He consistently advanced the ball, and he was always in the lineup. After he missed his rookie season due to injuries, he rushed for 1,013 yards the next year for the 49ers. Uh, the 49ers' approach led to less than optimal carries. He was willing to carry 300 or more times, and they were in the low 200s. 
for three, the three the seasons he was here. In his final year, when he ran for 877 yards and caught 63 passes for another 719, that total offense netted the 49ers 1,596 yards and 11 touchdowns and a Super Bowl championship. And we all know he went wild against the Chargers in Super Bowl 29 and probably should have been the MVP. Then he goes to Philadelphia, and in three years, he eclipsed 1,000 yards each season. He ran for 31 touchdowns. He moved to Seattle and posted back-to-back 1,200-yard seasons uh, before retiring after a final injury-plagued season. By then, he had proven he was more than a runner. He was one of a new breed of back who was also a dangerous receiver and a workhorse. One can debate whether Ricky Waters is a Hall of Famer, but that is the point. It's a debate his production earned him, but four words may well have denied him. So how about we try four different words? Let's take a look. Nice. I, I covered Ricky in San Francisco in 94. He was a great back. He was a terrific back. Um, let me ask you this. Fred Taylor has 1,000 more yards rushing, but he never gets a sniff either from Hall of Fame voters. So Ricky Waters or Fred Taylor? To me, it's Waters. Uh, you know, Fred was very good uh, as well. That extra 1,000 yards came over the final three seasons of his career when he was a part-time guy who was just kind of compi- compiling uh, yardage. If Ricky Waters wanted to do that, he probably could have hung around for a couple of more years uh, mm-hmm. and fattened things up, uh, but he didn't. But here's the key thing. Ricky Waters, 91 touchdowns. Fred Taylor, 74. Fred Taylor was not a very good receiver. Uh, plus, as I said, Waters did it in three different places, and to me, that says a lot. He was not a product of any system. Every system he ran in, he was a 1,000-yard rusher. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Ron, you mentioned that for who, for what. I remember seeing Ricky at the uh, Seahawks training camp, um, and I, I said to him, you know what, if he just stayed in San Francisco and won more Super Bowls, and you would have, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. And I remember what he said, you see my numbers? I am a Hall of Famer. <laughs> well, he's not. But yeah. but to me, this is just an illustration to me of how money can't buy you happiness. I mean, he chased the dollars, which is great, but he, he never cashed in with his career, which is regrettable, because you're right, he, he was a terrific running back. But those those... <laughs> Four words for who, for what, they just chased him and followed him everywhere. And I think they did have an impact on voters. Um, Anyway, well, like Ricky Ron, we've got to run, too. For who, for what? Well, for this next commercial, that's what. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Nice job, Ron. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as most of you know, we have the Masters going on this weekend. And we have the Stanley Cup playoffs going on now. And, Ron, I know you covered both. you have a preference? Look, you can't beat the Stanley Cup for uh, sustained intensity, uh, game after game after game in the playoffs. But you can't beat the Masters, the ambiance, the beauty, the history, the drama. I mean, I love that week every year in Augusta. And I say uh, uh, it's the one event I miss the most now that I'm out of the uh, daily journalism grind. It's a great thing. Great week. Well, I've covered the Stanley Cup, but I've never covered the Masters. What's the best part of it? And what's the best? What's the part you miss the most? Uh, sitting on the veranda with Arnold Palmer, having an, uh, an iced tea and lemonade, and talking with some of the greatest guys in golf history. But uh, uh, and, and just the history of the place and the intensity of the competition. You know, you got a hundred of the greatest golfers in the world, roughly there, all dreaming of uh, since they were kids of winning that green jacket, and it's, it's it's really something to see. And then you see these old champions all come back and play. Uh, tell you a little quick story. A few years ago, they tried to convince Ian Woosnan, the, the people who run the joint, to stop playing because he really couldn't play anymore. Uh, but they let him play the first two rounds anyway if you won the championship. And Ian, could be he could be a little uh, uh, salty. So when the Green Jacket came up to suggest to him that perhaps he might want to consider not playing next year, he looked at him and he said, hey, pal, I won this thing. Did you? <laughs> End of conversation. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I want to bring in our next guest because he can be a little salty, too. And that's former Hall of Fame voter Nick Canepa of the San Diego Union Tribune. Now, Nick and I go way back. We work together. Uh, we are partners together in the Fantasy Football League. And, Nick, I know you covered the Masters. And knowing you as I do for the past, whatever it is, 35 years or so, my guess is, just a guess, you take the Masters over the Stanley Cup. And, in fact, you probably take food poison over the Stanley Cup. <laughs> So, what, what you I would take, uh, yeah, I, I would take a venereal disease over the standard. Ouch! Oh, goodness gracious! <laughs> the Masters is, is my favorite event. That's the best event I ever covered. Really? And, and Ron was telling, Ron was telling a story. You know, they have the ceremonial tee, you know, uh, tee off where they get one of the yeah. former Masters champions yeah. to uh, tee off. Well, we went down there one morning about seven o'clock. And Sammy Sneed was teeing off, was going to tee off. So all the green jackets are, and people are lining the fairway there, you know, and, and the slammer gets ready to tee off. Well, he hits the ball about 100 yards, a line drive right between the eyes of some guy. <laughs> knocks him cold. I mean, knocks this guy cold. This guy's out. And so what happens? All the green jackets run up to, to the slammer and say, Hey, Sammy, great job, great job. He might have killed that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Just another <laughs> patron going down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, anyway, I, I know it's on my bucket list. I, yeah, it's yeah I, I'd love to see it. I, I'd love to see it once. But um, I asked Nick, honestly, to join us today because of something um, that happened actually not at the Masters or anywhere else in the, uh, other than San Diego last week, and, and that was the passing of the wife of former Chargers PR director Bill Johnston. Uh, her name was Ramona Johnston, and she suffered through Huntington's disease for 20 years before dying last week. And uh, I know Bill, known Ramona, and, and what makes this story so remarkable is that, it, to me, it's, it's really one of the deepest love stories out there, uh, with Bill quitting his job and staying in San Diego when the Chargers moved north. So he could look after his wife, and he dropped by, I think, first thing every morning. And, Nick, you knew a lot more about it, so uh, maybe you can tell us something about it. Yeah, well, he didn't, you know, he, he certainly he could have gone with the team to the uh, Costa Mesa Lima Bean Farm, but he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't find a place suitable for her. So he quit his job, and since he's got a, a job, he's an executive with the Padres now, which is great. And, he, and Bill, had act, Bill had actually moved uh, across the street from her facility. Uh, so, so every morning at 5 o'clock, he brought her a cup of coffee. He went to Starbucks and brought her a cup of coffee like every morning. Uh, you say great love affair. Uh, you, uh, you can't really have a greater love affair than this. I mean, uh, this is the most loyal. Uh, this was... Bill was so loyal and yeah, and right. got so deeply involved in in the, in the whole Huntington's disease thing. Uh, I was on the board for a while, and and I mean it's just a heinous disease, and it's 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 a lot like it's hard to describe, but it's a lot like Lou Gehrig's disease, except you live a lot longer. Yeah, but yeah. you lose your motor skills and. It was just tragic watching this beautiful woman through the years with with this disease just got worse and worse and and um, it's amazing to me that that she hung on as long as she did but yeah. but they did a lot of stuff I mean 
she was they ran marathons with her in a with her in a car. Uh, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, and it was, with uh, Bill and his daughter. Yes, and and you know the thing about Huntington's disease is there's a fifty fifty chance that your that your kids can get it. Right. And uh, and his son his son was checked and he doesn't have the gene. And yeah. as far as I know, his daughter Haley, who has been real close in all this, hasn't taken the test yet. Um, yeah. I guess maybe if she got married and wanted to have kids, she would. But really, there's not much you can do. If they tell you you have it, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's not like yeah. they can slow it down or prevent it. So. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, that, that, the, was, that, that's I mean, the definition. A, well, I was just going to say, Nick, yeah, that, I mean, that story you tell, that's the definition of for better or for worse. I mean, that, that Bill's Absolutely. I mean, this, this was as loyal a man, a husband, as you'll ever find in, in the world. I mean, I... I, I I would. I know one thing. I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm no he-man by any stretch, and there's no chance. I. Could, uh, it would have been hard for me to, to even come close to doing what he did. Amazing. I told him many times, "You're a better man than I." Well, <laughs> who wouldn't Which know under that? Under normal circumstances, it's <laughs> yeah. very hard to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I read somewhere that. They had raised around or over $3 million for research into Huntington's disease. And you mentioned the marathons, but uh, how did Bill and his family go about raising that kind of uh, money? That's, that's, that's a lot. Well, one of the things they did a couple other things. They had to shoot for the cure. It was, you shot, they, they had for the longest time, it was at Charger Park where they set up baskets and, and everything. You make baskets, and they raised a lot of money that way. Plus, you know, with, with auctions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Bill was always able to get really good auction stuff from the NFL and, and and all that. And then they had the big Huntington's Disease Gala, which they still do, usually in the fall. And um, and they made a lot of money. Uh, you know, just a big dinner. Uh, one year, I I I, uh, I even coaxed Roger Goodell into attending. Um, and Chris Berman was there, and Chris Berman's been there more than once. But hey, um, Nikki, I, I was there that year. I, I came out there that year for the game the next day, and you and I went together, I think, to that fundraiser. And you know what struck me as remarkable about, about that was, um, well, one, there were, there were hundreds of people there. Um, two, um, Bill was a featured speaker, and he talked to the audience for a long time. As you know about the disease, Chris Berman was the, the uh, sort of guest of honor or the MC, but Bill was up there and talked about the disease. But C, and, and most importantly, uh, he had his wife on stage with him. Do you remember that? She was in a wheelchair. Sure and, do. Yeah. And, and she was unable to speak, but he said she loves being up here. She loves because she just is having a great time, and she could smile. I mean, she had a radiant smile. And, and I saw him before the game the next day, and I'll never forget what I talked to him. And I said, you know what? I don't know how you do it. I have no idea how you do it because I could never stand up there with my crippled wife in a wheelchair and talk about her. I could not dissolve. Yeah, it's like you say. It's it's just one of the really great love stories, and this was an absolutely wonderful, beautiful woman. I mean, she oh was, yeah, she was stunning. I mean, when I started on the Charger Beat in '82, uh, they got married that year, and I went to the wedding. And when she'd come out the Charger camp, you know how football players are; <laughs> they used to go insane. I mean, she's just a gorgeous, wonderful woman, and it's. It's just one of the. It's just one of the really 
great tragedies. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just happy I was able to get involved in it um, uh, for a while anyway. Um, but uh, it's, I'm sure it's going to go on. I'm, I'm sure they aren't going to stop trying to raise money for it. Have you, uh, have you talked to Bill since her passing? How's he doing? I've only, I've, 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 uh, we have swapped emails. I mean, he, he's fine. I mean, he, he, you know, he knew it was coming. Right. You know, it still hits you hard, but he knew that it was going to happen one day. Sure. And uh, so he, they're having the service next Wednesday um, here. So, you know, I'm sure that's going to be very well attended. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the word that comes to mind with him is, is devotion. I mean, he was completely devoted to her. And as you mentioned earlier, when they had a chance to go north, and he had, you know, he was the PR director. He had a chance to go up there with a check the team. He said no. The reason was because he put his wife first. Imagine that, you know, and um, and just stuck by her side. And, uh, and, and there was actually a really good story written by Michael Gelkin in your paper, Nick, just before Michael left to cover the Raiders. And it was about that. It was about basically their love affair. Oh yeah, it was a great story, and it's it's been it's been re, it's been uh, it's been out on uh, on Twitter and stuff in the in the last week or so. Um, uh, he was, um, and uh, you know, he had one of the thirty. There's only thirty-two publicist jobs in America, NFL publicist jobs in America, and he he gave it up, and he'd been with the organization since 1979 when he fresh out of college. And he gave it up for her. Yeah, right. So, I mean, this is like it, a movie, you know? It is like a movie, and I thought it probably will be one. Uh, hey, Nick, we got to run, unfortunately, but thanks so much for stopping by. As I said, I knew Bill and Ramona oh, get, well. And get your handkerchiefs you. ready for that one. Yeah, sorry, kid. That, that will Get be a tearjerker. It's ready for that one. Yeah, oh, no, that's right. It, to, it, to me, it's one of the most remarkable and saddest stories of my lifetime. But thanks again, Nikki. Appreciate it. Thanks, no more problem, guys. See you, man. You got it. That was Nick Canepa, the San Diego Union Tribune. Up next, Hall of Fame voter John McLean. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a week ago, we discussed the Hall of Fame merits of former Raiders and Texans punter Shane Leckler. But we didn't do it with our next guest, who's one of our favorites, and that's Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. Now, John wrote a piece in the past week arguing for Shane Leckler's inclusion in the Hall, and he's here and tell us why. But before he does, John, I know Ron has got a question for you. So, Ronnie, take it away. Uh, John, I've always considered you a great connoisseur of, uh, of food around the country, and I want to get your take. Uh, it was opening day at Fenway Park today, and they had a brand-new uh, uh, feeding frenzy there. They created a new thing called the Breakfast Burger. Okay. Two, two waffles... In between of which is a fried egg, syrup, jam, and a hamburger. What do you think? <laughs> oh, that doesn't really appeal. It appeals to me on several levels, but not all at once. I couldn't even get my big mouth around that. <laughs> you can even add some strawberries if you'd like. They get the jam in there if you'd like, you know. I can't imagine if somebody could eat something like that by themselves at, in in one sitting. That just that is uh, that's we we have a thing in my hometown of Waco, Texas that a 
barbecue place called the Gut Buster. That's like a gut buster to me. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Hey, Ron, maybe they're serving those breakfast burgers to the Red Sox. Maybe that's their problem. Oh, God, they got some problems out there. My goodness, yeah. they are terrible. Well, John, we're not here to talk about breakfast burgers. We're here to talk about Shane Leckler. And, and let's get this out of the way right off the top. I mean, there's one punter in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as we know, and that's Ray Guy, but it took him 23 years to get there, and, and that's basically all there is for punters. There's one punter in, what, like 57, 56 years, whatever. Um, why do you think Shane Leckler should be the second punter? Uh, what what gives you a conviction about Shane Leckler as the second punter to go into Canton? Uh, well, first of all, I certainly don't think he's going in on the first ballot, maybe not second, third, fourth, or fifth. But I think he's deserving because he hunted for 18 years, and his last season was one of his best. He had his, let's see, third highest gross, his third highest net. He had his third most inside the 20. He had his second most inside the 10. He had his third most fair catches, and he did it at 41 years of age. He also had, like, his fourth field touchback. So he had, um, you know, players, as players continue their career, I don't care what position it is, we all know they usually start to sell off. But his last yep. season was a great one, so he went out in style, and he had different coaches that wanted him to kick different ways. And I know the knock in him was his net. His net was 39.7, which is not any among the top in history. And, but like uh, Ray Guys was 33, it was a different era. And one of the things, era, and I noticed... This is something I can say from watching Leckler in the last five years. The Texans did a terrible job of letting people cover punt kickoffs. And that's what the reason Bill O'Brien was not the third special team coordinator. He had three in his first five years. The last one being Brad Steely, who did a tremendous job last year of making their special teams, including coverage teams, show terrific improvement. So watching those coverage guys come and go and knowing what a poor job they did, I think Leckler at the end of his career was even more impressive based on what I saw. So, uh, and then when he was in the Raiders, when he first came up, Al Davis just wanted to come to hell and uh, which he did. So he's got the all-time leading growth. He's among his, let's see, three of the top five picks in history. I wrote all this, and I can't remember, but I think a, a strong case could be made for Shane, and I hope, that, uh, I hope he gets strong consideration because I think he's the second greatest punter in history. You punt for 18 years, and you're as good at the end as you were at the start and in the middle. That says a lot about you. Well, John, let me ask you something, because you know that room as well as anybody, and you know how loath some of them are to put specialists in. I mean, it took them forever to get Ray Guy in, uh, and before that, Jan Stenrud was the only specialist as a kicker. But lately, at least, it seems we've been more receptive. Do you think the room's more willing now to put somebody like a Shane Leckler in or Johnny Hecker than it was, let's say, 10 years ago, 5 years ago? I think without a 
shadow of a doubt. Um, I noticed Rich Gannon, who played with Leckler in Oakland, I noticed the tweet he had when I did the story. When I did this story on Shane, it was made. It was about him making his retirement official. His wife had given him a surprise retirement party at a place called the Redneck Country Club, which is actually a humongous barbecue joint. And she got 180 of his former teammates and friends to show up somehow she kept it quiet and when he showed up at this thing and they walk in a different entrance than they usually go to and he people yell surprised he told her i told you we shouldn't come in this entrance we screwed up somebody's surprise party and then he looks around said i recognized every room in in the building i thought this is for me wow awesome so that was the first time he talked about it, and uh, I went out to his house on Monday and did a long interview with him, and uh, and he had a lot of people call him last year. He said the Steelers called multiple times, the Chargers, the Vikings, and he couldn't remember how many more because he had punted so well. But at that time, he was... Uh, so involved in his daughter's softball and life after football, he wasn't going to come back. I also think that he's the kind of guy now we're not going to see him on TV. We're not going to hear a lot about him. But when the time comes that he's eligible, and, you know, if Adam Vinatieri ever retires, and we could all be dead before he does, (laughs) but if he does ever retire, I believe he will be the only specialist that we vote in on the first ballot pending, of course, who else is eligible that year. But uh, I think we're much more receptive now than we used to be. I remember the late Paul Zimmerman. He, he boy, he was against Ray Guy. And I remember one time him shooting it down, one of my first years of being in there. And uh, But today, we don't shoot people. Generally, most of us don't shoot people down. We promote people. Why did? Why is he retiring after a year like that? Why is he retiring? Why not just keep going? Uh, because I think at the time you know, he was he's forty one years old, right. and he and uh, Brad Seeley came in here and wanted this young undrafted guy, Trevor Daniel from University of Tennessee, who's real good. And uh, Shane, when he left, he said, told him, he said, "I'm going to keep playing." He said, "On the way back home." He had a long drive where he lives outside Houston. He had a lot to think about, and he said, I thought, you know, I've punted 18 years. That's long enough. I want to get out and do stuff with my daughters and my family, and that's what he's done. He said he hasn't looked back. He thought when the Chargers and the Steelers called, he thought, okay, I could finish my career punting for Philip Rivers. I could finish my career punting for Ben Roethlisberger. Those two teams are going to be in the playoffs. And then he said, I thought, you know what? I've punted long enough. And he walked out on top. Hey, John, since you're in Houston, I've got a question. I may have asked you before when we were together, but I want to ask you not about Shane Leckler, but about another specialist. That's Billy White Shoes Johnson. Why hasn't there been any talk anywhere about him as being a Hall of Fame candidate, as being a guy who should be Hall of Fame ready? I mean, this guy was on, Ron, wasn't he all two all-decade teams as a yeah. returner? Yep, and, 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 and and, and people don't give him a sniff. I, I don't get it. I, I just don't understand it. And I know you saw White Shoes. I mean, what's the deal? I think that's a guy we should be talking about, too. We don't put, we don't put returners in the Hall of Fame. 
I don't think we've Make, ever put a returner in yeah. the Hall of Fame. And Billy, Billy, if if indeed we do, then I will be pushing him like crazy because White Shoes. I covered him in in, uh, in let's see, he started here, played some nine things in six years here, and finished his career in Atlanta. And I covered him for four of those. And when it comes to returners and changing a game, no matter what the weather, you know, he was as good as it's been, and he was pretty smart too. One time the weather was so bad in Cleveland, everybody was miserable, and he had a great game. And they asked Bun Phillips, why did he have such a great game and everybody else was terrible? He said because he decided to wear pantyhose. I guess next time we come back up here and the weather's bad, <laughs> I'm going to ask all the players to wear pantyhose. I don't know where I'll get a size that fits Earl. <laughs> Should have talked to Joe Namath. He was marketing there you it. There <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you've sat in that room, and we we touched upon it briefly. But you sat in there for many years of hearing guys talk about, uh, the, and there's still certain guys in the room who feel this way that, you know, special teams players uh, are not football players. You know, they're they're for the most part guys who aren't good enough to play uh, most of the game, and so they play six, seven, eight, nine, nine plays. Uh, what do you make of that sort of argument? It always seems kind of absurd to me. You know. A returner is a position. Long snapper is a position. Punter is a position. Somebody's the best guy who ever did it. When I started on the committee, I subbed for Mickey Herskowitz, who was on it. And then I've officially been on it 26 years, but I think I've been in there 28 or 29. And the attitude of when I was young and everybody else was old, like we're old now, they didn't feel that way. You'd hear players didn't feel that way. Some coaches didn't feel that way, that they're real players. And I think now it's different. And I think, uh, I think as I mentioned earlier, I think Adam Vinatieri will be the first specialist who goes in on the first ballot, and he certainly deserves it. And Martin Anderson opened up some doors. Ray Guy opened up some doors. Now, I think Adam Vinatieri will if, you know, if he ever retires. But uh, I think people are a little more, have a little more leeway when it comes to guy. And I also think the competition, as you guys know, every year it is fierce. Just fierce. It's intense. It's tough. Yeah, I'd like to see a year where we go, okay, is there anybody really worthy? The problem is there's too many. The 15 finalists every year worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. So I think a, a specialist someday, you know, Steve Tasker for coverage, but in uh, uh, some of these returners, and I'd love to see White Shoes Johnson be considered by the Seniors Committee. And uh, I can't wait for the time comes when we do put a returner in there. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, John, thanks so much for the time, as always. Clark really, and Ron, really my enjoyed. pleasure. Thank you, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks, John. I'm going to get it. you one of those breakfast burgers. I'll, I'll ship it down to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was all the same food John McLean. Up next is the two-minute drill. You better hurry, Ron. <laughs> You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. <laughs> this is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, tell those officials to do what they do best. That's the two-minute warning. Thanks again, guys. Take it away, Ron. Two-minute drill. Well, I remain interested in Russell Wilson. What I'm interested in is what happens on the 16th in Seattle when they don't do the deal. 
the Mariners play Cleveland at home. <laughs> Jet safety Jamal Adams says he hopes Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski does not retire. Is he a glutton for punishment, or does he have memory lapses? He's a jet, Ron, so both. Good point. Alabama coach Nick Saban says college players lose by entering the draft early. Lose what? A chance to play dialing for dollars with Aunt Becky. <laughs> the New York Jets have new uniforms, but they leaked out before they could reveal them. When will the fumble stop in New York? When Tom Brady retires. Boy, those uniforms bad, Ron. Think <laughs> of those uniforms as an aside. Why do they say New York on them when they practice in New Jersey, play in New Jersey, and their offices are in New Jersey? I don't know. New Jersey? Get out of Jersey? I don't know. Jeez. Will Josh Rosen be moving on draft day? Yeah, shortly after he has that first cup of coffee, if you know what I mean. She's <laughs> out. Steve, Steve Spurrier says his Orlando Apollos are the AAF champions because they had the best record when the league folded. Do they get a ring, a check, or jump the line past to Disney World? They get a t-shirt that reads, we won the AAF and all we got was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> Cam Newton says, when I'm focused, I'm dangerous. What is he when he's not focused? Another disgruntled Auburn fan. <laughs> Who will log the most pre-draft air miles? Drew Locke, Dwayne Askins, Daniel Jones, or Kyla Murray? Mel Kuyper Jr. <laughs> the hapless sons have asked Larry Fitzgerald, of all people, to sit on in, in on interviews with candidates for their new top executive. Shouldn't he have been sitting in with the Cardinals? Not unless you know something about Steve Kahn that I don't. <laughs> Bucks GM Jason Light has traded down two of the last three drafts. Will he go daft and draft at number five this year? No, he's not saying. He figures it's better not to reveal, reveal anything than go buck naked. Would the Scrooge like Patriots ever consider drafting LSU cornerback Greedy Williams? Only if he's a masseur. That's the end of the game. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.